So we are returning back to the Gospel of John this morning, which is John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. We're going to go verse 1 through 16. And while you're turning there, a couple things. One, this just in, Revelation this coming Thursday will not be meeting. So just make a note, this Thursday we're not meeting, but then we'll be hitting again. So just stand by for that. Also really encourage you, if you're curious about membership class, just come. You're not committing to be a quote-unquote member by attending the class, but it's a great way to evaluate what that means to us as a church and whether or not that's something that is meaningful for you. So I encourage you, definitely come and check that out. I look forward to seeing a lot of people there. Robert's got a great program for us, so I encourage you to check it out. So as many of you know, my dad passed away just this last Christmas day. And, of course, a couple of my siblings live in Australia, so we needed to wait for them to make arrangements to get out here. So we just had his memorial service on Saturday, and I thought I'd open by sharing a story that I shared at his memorial service. So my dad, God bless him, he, he was a pretty tough guy. I mean, he was, he was that sort of old school, pretty strict, disciplinary, stoic, Midwestern guy. And, you know, I pretty much as a child grew up in, 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 in fear of, of his belt. And he was quick with that belt, man. He, if, you, if you crossed my mom <laughs> or so he thought you were being disobedient, that belt could come off quicker than you could say, uh-oh, right? <laughs> so he was pretty tough that way. But there were other sides to my dad as well. He wasn't just that. And this story, I think, illustrates that. So... When I was, I don't know, I, I guess I was around 10, 9 or 10, my sister, he, also he was a very hard worker, so he's constantly at work. And he ha- when I was growing up, he happened to be working at a food processing plant in Rancho Cucamonga. And, and so my sister and I would bring him dinner, because he'd be working, working late at one time. We brought him dinner, and I'd just kind of hang out, being bored, being a 10-year-old boy in this big, huge processing plant. And I decided, everybody had gone on break, they were on a break, and my dad's having his dinner, you know, and everybody's on break. But they keep the line, the conveyor system running during their break time, right? And I'm thinking, cool, conveyor system. I bet you that would be a fun thing to ride. <laughs> so I grabbed a piece of cardboard and hopped on the conveyor at the beginning, at the beginning of the packing line, and I'd just ride it all the way down the packing line. Of course, all these guys, all these workers are on break, and they all of a sudden see this little toe-headed 10-year-old boy come riding by on the conveyor belt. Hey, how's it going? They'd crack up and laugh at me or wave at me. So that's cool. I rode all the way to the end, and at the very end, the conveyor would like roll to the end of the conveyor, and then it started a series of rollers that would roll the product out into the shipping area. And I'd go as far as I could go, and the last moment, I'd jump off, grab my piece of cardboard, and run all the way back down to the other end and hop on again. I just like did this three or four times. Well, the last time, at just the last moment, when I went to jump off, I slipped, and my foot went between the conveyor and that first roller. And immediately, in my mind's eye, I'm picturing like a cartoon of myself being rolled out like a piece of dough. You know, like, oh, man, this is not good. And I'm trying to pull it out, and it's, it's just slowly pulling my leg in between these things, and there's nothing I can do. So I just let out the scream, and all these guys come running, and somebody hits the emergency stop on the line, and it stops, and, the, and they stopped it. I think it was just up to my knee when they stopped it. And so then they're trying to pull my leg out, and they can't get my leg out. It is just like mashed in between there. And so they, all these got men grab all these tools, and they start unbolting the entire line from the shop floor so they can move this whole thing over and extricate me from this this roller system and that's another thing about my dad my dad he's you know he's kind of a natural born mechanic I mean he can turn a wrench and he was cranking those wrenches like you know as before we all had electric drills and he just he was like crank that thing out they got that whole thing unbolted shifted the rollers off and as this is happening as they're unbolting this stuff and I realize that I'm not going to die after all then I start to shift to, oh my gosh, what is my dad going to do? I have shut down. He's, he's, you know, the shop manager. He's running the show here. And I have just shut down his entire line, right? What is, what is this going to do? What, what's going to happen? 
And so they get it unbolted. They pull this thing away. My dad gets hold of me, picks my leg up, and he picks me up, and he walks me over, and he very gently sets me down on this, this stack of stuff <laughs> and palpitates my legs and looks at it, and there's no skin broken. There's no broken bones. Some good bruising eventually, but, but he just checks me out, makes sure I'm, I was okay, and he was not, there was not one bit of anger. It was, he was just con- totally concerned and just t- so tender. With I had not s- experienced that much tenderness from him up until that moment. He was just so tender with me, and, and I'm sure it scared you know, the heck out of him as well to see his little boy getting caught up in this machinery. So that's my dad. It's a little brief story of my dad, and it hopefully is relevant to some of what we're going to talk about. So let's go. John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. So just kind of remind you of the context because it's been a while since we've been in, in John. So Jesus has been betrayed. He's been taken prisoner. He's been turned over to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees just want to get rid of Jesus. Jesus has threatened their power base. He's threatened. He's threatening. He, he's a threat to everybody, basically. The whole power structure and the tension. There's a lot of political tension in Israel at this time with Rome and within the various religious sects of, of the Jewish religion. There's all this tension. And Jesus is showing up in the middle of that and just setting off all these alarms and has got everybody up on edge. And the rulers are intent on getting rid of him. So they've captured him, and they, of course, are under the rule of Rome, so they don't have the power to execute summary judgment and to condemn someone to death. Only Rome does, only the Roman ruler. So they're bringing him to Pilate for that purpose, and that's where we start off verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. I mean, think about this. Think about who Jesus is and how he is being treated. I was trying to think of what would be a picture for us to kind of see really what the, the reality of what this looks like. And the, the best I can come up with is imagine this massive powerful lion that's laying in the bush, laying in like some, you know, some high grass. And out of the grass, his little tail is poking out. And some little boys come along and see this little fluff of fur. And they start to laugh at this fluff of fur and call it names and go, ah, you think you're a great lion, don't you? You're ridiculous. You're just this pitiful, pitiful person. And they stick a thorn in it and stomp on it and jumping down on it, I would you not expect that lion to just make a meal of those boys in like two seconds, right? But that's what's going on here. I mean, these guys are mocking Jesus as if he were king, but what's the reality? Is Jesus ultimately not the king? Is Jesus not the creator of heaven and earth? Think about the restraint, the loving restraint that Jesus is exercising in this moment. And, of course, he's compelled by his love for us to be the sacrificial lamb, to take this abuse. But it's just, I think this whole passage is one of the most ironic passages I've ever really studied. They're just full of irony here. I mean, these guys are making fun of Jesus and pretending to make him a king. The reality is he's king of the universe. And yet he has humbled himself to the point where he's willing to take this abuse from pagan soldiers for the sake of them and the sake of us. Amen? Verse 4, Pilate went out. So let let me make a couple points for the, and then Andy can bring up the media. So a couple points about that verse. Do not mistake the loving sacrifice of Christ for weakness. And that's what these guys, this is the mistake that these guys are making. They see Jesus as this weak victim, this prisoner, this this rabble-rouser that just needs to be dealt with. And they don't understand who he really is. And they experience or believe or understand his weakness, I mean, his, his humility and his loving sacrifice, they understand that as weakness. 
that we need not to make that mistake. Don't mistake Jesus' love and his forbearance and his patience with us for weakness. Okay? I want to read Revelation. I want to jump. Just kind of give you a picture. Who is this Jesus? What's the reality? What is Jesus... What does this kinghood really look like? And I think a really good place to see that really vividly is in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 5. And it says, and this is what's happening here. This is a vision of of God's throne room. John is having a revelation, a vision, and he sees the throne room of God, okay? And, on, and he sees this amazing throne, and sitting on this throne is God the Father and all of his glory. All right, that's the context, starting in five. And one of the elders said to me, well, let me set this up a little more. <laughs> so he sees the throne room, he sees God the Father sitting on the throne, and God has a scroll in his hand, and it has seven seals on it. And this scroll represents God completing all of history, God con- consummating our ultimate reconciliation. It represents God bringing all of history to a close and, and inaugurating the new kingdom. That's what it represents. And, and an angel says, who is worthy to take the scroll and break the seals of the scroll? Which the implication of that is, who is worthy to com- bring history to its conclusion? Who is worthy to consummate all things and usher in the new kingdom? Who's worthy for that? And another, and then it, what it says just before this verse, it says, no one was found who was worthy to break the seals. And it just grieves John to the heart. And he's just weeping that no one is found to break the seals of the scroll. Picking up in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is Jesus? He is the lion of Judah. He is a ferocious, powerful lion of Judah. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it when he, in his whole series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he pictures Christ as a, as a lion and gives him the name Aslan, right? Kind of metaphorically. And at one point, one of the characters says, he's a good lion, but he's not a tame lion. Don't mistake the goodness of that lion for being weak and tame. He is a good lion, but he's not a tame lion. He is a ferocious lion. He is the lion of Judah. Amen? Not only is he the lion of Judah, but he is the root of David. What does that mean, the root of David? He He is the promised king. Throughout the Old Testament, God is promising Israel promising Israel, and actually God makes a direct promise to King David that says, hey, one of your descendants will sit on your throne, and that descendant will rule from your throne forever, all right? This is the messianic king who will rule forever. Jesus is that messianic king. Jesus has and will and continue, will continue to rule forever and ever. He is the messianic king. So how do you see Jesus? Let me continue to read here. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So Jesus is the lion. He's the lion of Judah. He is the king, the root of David, but he is also the lamb having the appearance of one who was slain. He's the lamb as well. There's both sides to Jesus. And those of you who are in the Revelation study, what does seven mean? What does seven represent? Perfection. So he has seven horns. What what do horns represent? Power, authority, right? He has perfect power. He is the perfect authority. He is the full, complete authority. That's who Jesus is. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And he is also the lamb who was slain to atone for us, right? So it's two sides of who Jesus is. So who is, who is Jesus to you? Is he the lion and the lamb? Is he the lamb 
and the lion. I think sometimes we can only think of Jesus as, well, he's the forbearing, you know, kind, loving Christ. And he is. But we also have to recognize that he is the lion of Judah, right? And I think other times we can think, oh, you know, God is tough, you know, he's scary, he's awesome. I have to remember that, you know what, but he also is the lamb. He loves us. He gave himself up for us. But we need both those aspects of who Christ is to really understand who he is as king of our lives. Amen? We need both of those images. All right, so let's continue back to, and actually, just skip it. You know what? On your own, you might want to continue that chapter of Revelation. Let me just read real quickly, starting in verse 9. Just so you have this image really clear in your mind and who Jesus really is. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. He's talking about us right there. We reign with Christ. Christ is a king, and he has a kingdom, and we are servants in that kingdom. We reign with him. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, catch this, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, seven, right? Worthy is the lamb. Contrast, take, put that, take that image that you have in your mind right now that, that John sees in this revelation and contrast it with what we're reading with Jesus being flogged and beaten and these common soldiers are putting a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe and mocking that as if he is just what they think he is, which is just some, some Jew who did, got caught, caught in the wrong place and now they have an opportunity to make fun of him, make sport of him. What, what, what an irony. It, it, it blows my mind. But the point for us is do we understand who Jesus really is? Do we understand he is the Lion of Judah and he was the Lamb that was slain? All right, going back to John Gospel. John 19, picking up in verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them. Now, Pilate, of course, is the Roman ruler of the area. Uh, On the surface in this story, Pilate looks like he's the one in charge, right? It's interesting. I was just reading for, for a while, you know, particularly in the modern era, the moderns were really saying, well, so much of the Bible is wrong because there's no archaeological evidence of this person or that person. We, you know, it's not not there in the evidence, it's been made up, but I think it just within the last 20 years, they found a stone inscribed with the name Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, right? And they, up till that time, had been saying, I don't, we don't think this guy character actually ever existed. We don't have any archaeological evidence of his existence, so he didn't exist. Only the Bible talks about him, so that's got to be wrong, right? But, of course, eventually they find a st- an inscription that says exactly what the Bible says. It's just a little sub, sub point there. So Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in, guilt in him. So Pilate is in a very, very, very difficult position, just like oftentimes we find ourselves in life in a very difficult position. And the difficulty for Pilate is on one hand, he's got this Jewish people who are all up in arm about this Jesus guy. And his big deal is, is he he wants to avoid any kind of disturbance at all costs, right? He is a Roman governor. So this is, this is what your job is as a Roman governor. Your job is to keep the peace, okay? That's your job number one, keep the peace. Because why? If you keep the peace of the area that you're ruling over for Rome, 
then everybody stays busy, everybody is working, farmers are planting their crop, you get a good yield, you have a good economy, that good economy produces taxes for Rome. That's the bottom line, right? So your job is to keep the peace. Well, Pilate is having a tough time of it because he's ruling over this highly religious area that has got all kinds of religious and social tension, and now these guys sound like they're about to riot, and that's the last thing he wants to have happen. That's on one side. On the other side, he has his wife coming to him. We is recording another gospel. Hey, this man, Jesus, I, this righteous man, have nothing to do with him because I've had a really troubled sleep. I've had bad dreams all night about this man, Jesus. He's righteous. He's not guilty. Have nothing to do with him because th- there's more going on here than what meets the eye. So now Pilate is caught, and he's, Pilate himself has done his own evaluation of Jesus, and he doesn't find any guilt in him. So legally, I mean, he's bound to, to operate under the truth, but on the other hand, he's got to avoid this people rioting. So he's caught in between these two, two forces, and he's trying to find a way out of it. And he thought he would find a way out of it by having Jesus flogged, and then showing Jesus to the crowd and say, look, okay, I've punished them. That should be enough. Now just, you know, let this go. Move on. I've punished them, I've punished them enough. But the crowd, of course, is not having it. And it just keeps Pilate in this place of great tension. And he's literally caught between a rock and a hard place. And like I said, on the surface, it looks like he's in charge. He's the king. But is he really and the problem, the problem for Pilate and the problem that we all have when we challenge or want to say that, well, who is Jesus really? Is Jesus, Jesus really the king? Notice it's interesting in verse 7. Uh, yeah, just, do I want to go verse 7? Yeah, verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die now catch this, because he has made himself the son of God. It's kind of like saying, well, he's making himself out to be the son of God. But that's blasphemy because we know he isn't the son of God. We know he isn't the king. He isn't the, he isn't the promised Messiah. So for him to claim that is blasphemy. And because it's blasphemy, I, our law says he should die. Right? But here's the problem with their belief that he's not the Messiah or that he is not the Christ or that he is not the king of the cosmos. Here's the problem they have, and and the best way to look at that problem is if we go to John chapter 10. We'll back up in the gospel a little bit to John chapter 10. And here's the problem we all have when we question what, you know, Christ in terms of Christ being God in the flesh. And, of course, the implication of that is he is our king. And, of course, oftentimes we're not comfortable with him being a king, and we want to question, well, is he really? So John chapter 10, verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are, this is Jesus talking, by the way, and he's talking to uh, the religious leaders who are accusing him of blasphemy. He says, the fa- do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? So Jesus is not making himself out to be God. It's the Father who's consecrated him. It's the Father who calls Jesus the Messiah, the, his son in whom he's well pleased, right? It's the Father who's given him that authority. He doesn't claim it for himself. The Father consecrated and sent into the world. You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So here's the problem that unbelievers have. The problem is, okay, you don't want to believe in Jesus? How do you explain him turning water into wine? How do you explain him causing a lame man who's been lame his entire life suddenly getting up and walking and carrying his pallet away? How do you explain him giving sight to the blind? Right? And of course, there's lots of ways that the world has tried to explain that away. Well, you know, really it's the third century, fourth century church that came up with all these myths to sort of 
make themselves powerful and, make, and legitimize their own religion. Problem with that is all these manuscripts, we have original manuscripts that date back to the third century that are clear, obvious copies of manuscripts that are even in the second century. And I think actually our earliest manuscript, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is late second century, but at, at, at least early third century. And not only that, these manuscripts are scattered all around the Roman Empire. You know, by the third, fourth century, they're, they're finding manuscripts in Egypt and in Rome and in, in Asia Minor. They're just scattered all around the empire. So you don't get all these copies that are hand-copied and they all match up with each other. You don't get those scattered all around the empire by suddenly creating them in the third century. It doesn't happen. It's, we're talking ancient world here. Things travel slowly, right? So these things were written right near the time that it happened, right after the time it happened. So then the, the question becomes, well, okay, yeah, it was written by the followers of Jesus and their disciples, but it was a conspiracy. You know, they were doing it to, you know, make themselves powerful. But of course, all the disciples and, and the early church fathers, almost all of them perished because of their faith, right? Why would you create a a lie and then die for that lie just doesn't hold up so that's the problem if you want to say you know jesus jesus is just a good teacher you know jesus is just like muhammad or just like the buddha or just like you know whoever your favorite guru is you know who, who's the uh positive thinker guy i forget his name uh i don't know our culture i can't think of his name right now but wh whatever the guru is uh, jesus is just a great teacher well and, and I love the one where they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, if he never claimed to be God, how come everybody's so upset? Right? How come these guys want to get him crucified if he's not claiming to be God? Clearly, the, their whole premise for taking him before Pilate is that he is committing blasphemy. Blasphemy is calling himself God. Right? So let's be clear. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. And he proves his godhead by doing all these great signs that no one else has been able to do. There's no other guru, great teacher that raised people from the dead, right? Only Jesus is the one who's raised Lazarus from the dead, and him, he himself was raised from the dead. So that's the problem for um, Pilate, and that's the problem for any time that we want to doubt the authority of Christ in our life. Right? Because Christ has proved his divinity, and if he is divine, then he is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate Lord. He is a benevolent dictator. Praise God. All right, so continuing in our, in our passage, back to John 19. Verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, what, what's the statement? The statement is, is that Jesus is claiming to be God. When Pilate heard this statement, catch this, he was even more afraid. Okay, Pilate knows there's something going on here. There's something more about this person, Jesus, than what the Jewish leaders are claiming. And, and when they say he claimed to be God, Pilate's response is, uh-oh. What does this mean? Why is my wife so disturbed? A lot of us husbands have learned to trust the instincts of our wives because they're often very perceptive. And I think Pilate is the same way. What's going on here? And he's even more afraid. Continuing on. Um, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So what's happening here? This is a total inversion of what it looks like on the outside. What it looks like on the outside is Pilate is in charge. He's the Roman governor. His word is what matters, right? 
What Jesus is saying is, look, you can't do anything apart from the authority that comes from above. And who is from above? Right? God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. To take this to its logical conclusion, Jesus is saying, look, you have no authority over me other than the authority that I've given you. And I have a purpose in what I'm doing. I am playing the part of the sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of my people and for any of those who will receive me. Remember in the beginning of John, remember it said um, Jesus came into the world and he went to his own people, but his own people would not receive him. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's you and, you and me, brother and sister. He gave us the right to become children of God by being the sacrificial lamb. And he does it by his own choice and his own authority. There's another passage in Matthew when he's first arrested, right? And Jesus pulls out the sword and cuts off the servant's ear. And Jesus says, Peter, put away the sword. Don't you understand? I could just say a word to my father and he would immediately send 12 legions of angels and deliver me. I mean, Jesus has this in hand. He's not a victim of this at all. Who's the king in this story? The king is Jesus. And he is making sacrifice for his people. It's not Pontius Pilate. You know how many, people, how many are in a legion, Roman legion? About the time of Christ, there are about 5,000 Roman soldiers made up a legion. So 12,000 times, I mean, 5,000 times 12 legions, what is that, 60,000? I got the math right, John, yeah? 60, and, the, and you look in the Bible, when one angel shows up, what's the person who sees that? What generally is the re response of the person who sees that one angel? They're like on the, in the dirt, right? Face down, trembling in fear with one angel. She says, hey, I can just say the word, and I've got 12 legions of angels at my side. So don't, don't be in a doubt about who's in charge here. And he's saying to Pilate, look, your sin would be greater except that I'm in charge of what's going on here and I'm making sacrifice. And the ones who knew better, the ones who should have received me as their own, have rejected me and theirs is the greater sin. God, help us not to ever belittle you, Jesus, and who you are. So who is the king and who is in the hard place? It looks like Pilate's the king and it looks like Jesus is in the hard place, but the reality is Jesus is the king and Pilate is in the hard place along with a lot of other people. And the question for us is what is your hard place? What is our hard place? Where does it get difficult for us? Where do we feel that tension of compromise? And do we recognize that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the King, that our way is probably not as good as his way, right? If he made us, if he created us, it's probably better to align ourselves up with his purposes rather than our own, particularly given that we're such broken people, right? So what is your hard place? Is your hard place with people? Do you fear people? I think all of us on one level or another, whether we admit it or not, there's some part of us that's a people pleaser. Am I right? Or am I the only one? Right? But you know what? We need, do we fear the Lord more than we fear people? You know, whoever that person is that, that makes you nervous for whatever reason think about the fact that the lord is so much greater and that that your fear your reverence ultimately belongs to jesus right and not that person ultimately what's your hard place fear itself you know who likes fear anybody want to sign up hey i want a good dose of fear today i just want to tremble in my boots none of us like that but at the core of that fear, how often is it really boiled down to we just don't understand that Jesus is in charge of the situation? 
and that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is the king of the universe, and that we need a fresh vision of his kingship over our life. What about temptation? It's that hard place, that tension of temptation. Do you have a tendency when, when you're feeling fearful, when you're afraid of a person, to go to the refrigerator and eat something to try to make you feel better? What do you use to, to, for that feel good, to make you sort of feel better and medicate yourself? I wonder how much of what we are tempted by is really something God has already offered us, but we just want to use it out of the formulary. You know, it's like Jesus is this doctor who prescribes all this great joy and love for us, and we tend to want to use it in a way that's not, in, not the way it's prescribed. You know, we want to have whatever it is now and not later, or we want to have it in its wrong context. But if we understand that Jesus loves us and he, he, his di- desire for us is to be made whole and full, then we're much more willing to submit to his authority and his kingship. All right, let's, let's continue verse 19, or verse 12, starting at 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Okay, so Pilate's now convinced, oh my gosh, you know, there, there's, this is a holy, minimally this is a holy man. I don't want to be on the wrong side of this, sorry. Um, so he's seeking, trying to figure, find a way out of this and release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these things, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Okay, so Caesar's like sitting down on the place of judgment. So, okay, this is it. Final judgment time. But really, who's the judge, ultimately? Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the, the sixth hour. He said to, to the Jews, behold, your king. Notice he hasn't gotten to the point of saying, behold, my king. But he says, at least he gets to the point, of, behold, your king. And he's not saying, behold, the man who says he's your king. He says, Behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Ah, that is the ultimate rejection right there. That is God's ultimate, God's people's ultimate rejection of himself. Is that crazy? The the people that God has been nurturing from day one, from creating Adam in the garden all the way up through Abraham, Moses, all the way up into Christ himself, and these people reject them. And of course, when we all, it's easy for us to say, oh, we, we, if we'd seen Jesus do these miracles, we wouldn't reject them. But would we? I don't know. So this is the ultimate just the ultimate rejection of Christ. We have no king but Caesar, a pagan, secular king. Right? That's idolatry, frankly. So the question is for us, uh, who is our king? Or, or do we have, let me put it a different way. Are there places in our life, are there hard places in our life where we say, literally, I have no king but this thing. You know, are there those places in our life? Do you find yourself, are you between the king and a hard place? I'm going to read this Hebrews 12. It just gives so much insight into this, to this hard place. And by the way, we're all there, right? I'm preaching to all of us, including myself, and There is one place or another in our lives that is a hard place and we struggle to give Jesus the authority that he already has. By the way, it's not that we give him the authority. He already has the authority, but we resist it and we deny it and we want to try and hold it away from him. We want to stay in control of this aspect of our life. So Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking where? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I love that passage. You were saved because Jesus saved you, right? And not only did he save you, but he is also going to perfect you. So as we wrestle with these areas that we struggle in, understand Jesus is not going to give up on you. If he saved you, he's going to perfect you, and he's going to go all the way with you. And, and one day, at the final consummation, we will arrive at that perfection. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Who's the joy? Us. The joy that was set before him, the reason he endured the cross, was for a relationship with us. That's why he endured it. The joy of restoring us to himself. That's his great joy. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Anybody growing weary and faint-hearted of their faith and their devotion to the Lord? Consider him who endured such hostility from pagan sinful men. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, no, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. <coughs> oh, sorry. Oof, that was bad. Sorry about that. Everybody awake now? <laughs> sorry about that. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So if you are struggling, let me just make it really clear. If you are struggling, if you have a hard place in your life, and you're just struggling with the lordship of Christ, and you just don't want to give up that part of your life, understand that the Lord loves you enough to discipline you. Understand that if you're misusing the tail of the lion, at some point you're going to hear that deep-throated rumble, that deep-throated warning that says, hey, I love you, and you're headed the wrong way, and you need to confess and repent. All right? And we've all been there, and we all will be there. We all have those moments. So I want to encourage you, if you feel that word of discipline from the Lord, be encouraged because that means he loves you. If you never experience any discipline of the Lord, guess what? Then you should start to worry because you're an illegitimate child and you're not adopted into the family. And then you need to repent and say, Lord, I, apparently I'm, I don't believe you. Save, save my life. Redeem me. So what is the hard place that you are unwilling to surrender to Jesus? Is it your joys? Jesus is the author of joy. And isn't it funny how I, in our culture right now, we have this phrase called guilty pleasures, right? What's your guilty pleasure? And isn't it interesting that we associate pleasure always with guilt? Maybe not always, but often, right? And yet Jesus is the author of pleasure. It's just we misuse it, and then it becomes a destructive thing, right? We misuse the prescription, and then we become addicted. We misuse wine, and we become a drunkard. We misuse food, and we, and we eat too little, or we eat too much, or we eat the wrong kind, Right? We, we misuse, Jesus created the economy, created the whole basis of our livelihood, and we can enjoy that and share that and be generous with that, but we misuse it and we hold it for ourselves, and then it becomes something it wasn't meant to be. It becomes a burden and a, and a point of sorrow for us. So is your hard place your joys? Maybe you don't understand the joy that Jesus desires for you. Remember earlier in John, Jesus said, this is, my, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Why? That your joy may be made full. Whole, rich, deep, overflowing, abundant joy. That's what Jesus wants for us. But we short-circuit that. 
and we take things out of context and we misuse it and it turns into something that it becomes painful and shameful and sorrowful. But Je- is Jesus the king of your joy? Do you find your joy in Christ? Is Jesus the king of your love? Or is love a hard place for you? Does your love have no boundaries? You don't know how to say no to people. And really that's not love, right? When we just enable people or we allow people to run us over, that's not love ultimately. What love is, is doing what is right for the other person according to what God defines as right. Not what we define as right, not what they define as right, but what God defines as right. We need to deliver that and help that person in what God says is right for that person. But so often we want to give people what we think is right, or so often we just want to go along with, with whatever people think is right for them. I mean, that is our culture, right? Do what feels good and don't judge and, you know, just go along, go with the flow. But, you know, real love means standing up for what's right, what's better for a person, not just what they want in the moment. Is Jesus the king, the Lord of your sense of security? Is he your ultimate protector? Is he your high tower? Or, or have you elevated other things, your money? Is your money the source of your security, even though you stress about it all the time? Isn't that ironic how when we get things twisted, we say, okay, money is going to save me, but then we spend our life just stressing about our 401k plan. That's craziness, right? But we're all there. We've all been there. It's like, you know what? Is Jesus king of your life? Is Jesus going to give you what you need? You know what? We're, we're spoiled. I got to tell you, American, I, I heard a statistic. I don't know if it's true, but probably semi-true. But I heard a statistic that says, if you have change in your pocket, you are wealthier than, I don't know, something like 80% of the rest of the world. Don't quote me on the numbers. I'm just freelancing it. But the principle is true, right? Are we not the wealthiest people in the world? Actually, are we not the wealthiest people throughout history? I mean, there might be half of 1% that's wealthier than us through the course of history, but we are wealthy. And yet, how preoccupied are we with our wealth and how we're going to hang on to our, how we're going to get wealth and how we're going to hang on to it? Is Jesus the king of your life? Is he the king of your resources? Is he the king of your provision? And I tell you, the more we get hold of the reality that he is king of our provision, the more joy we can have, the less stress we will have in our life, right? It all comes together in Christ. Is your hard place with people, as I mentioned earlier? Or is it relationships? Is Jesus the king of those difficult relationships? Are you doing what Jesus would have for that other person? Or are you just trying to protect yourself? Or are you just trying to get something out of the other person? Or are you showing up in the love of Christ with that person, whatever the issue is? Ultimately, is Jesus king or are you king? Are you the king of yourself? Are you the king of your own life? Or is Jesus the king? I mean, that is the ultimate question. And at our salvation, our our confession was, no, Jesus, you know what? I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I'm broken. I need your help save me. And he did. And he does. And he did. But then he's not content with that. He's not content to just leave us floundering and broken and clinging on to things that are just wind and dust and are going to evaporate and rot away in our hands. He wants us to bring our lives fully under his kingdom, fully under his lordship. He is the king. So that's the choice before us this morning. Will we embrace again the Lord as our king in whatever hard place you have in your life? Or will you in that part of your life say, no, I know better. Jesus isn't king, I'm king. I have no other king but myself in this area, in my loves, in my joys, in my finances, in my relationships. I have no other king but myself. I trust myself. Well, good luck with that. But as for me and my house, we choose the Lord as our king. And I, I don't do it perfectly. Nobody does. No one will until the consummation. 
but let's repent. Let's turn our direction and take that area that we have not yet surrendered to his authority and give it to him and trust him. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Can we not trust him in that? If we've trusted him for our salvation, can we not trust him in the details of our life? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we call you Lord, (laughs) always. How often I start off my prayer, Lord Jesus, and yet there are areas of my life and areas of my brothers and sisters, Father, where we have not yet submitted to you. Lord, today is the day. Today is the day that we turn that thing over to you, that we decide and choose obedience to you, knowing that you are the king of the universe. You are the creator. You are the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the king of kings and lord of lords, Father. And our only path to joy and peace and glory is through submitting to you, Father, in this life and the next. So, Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that you would empower us to repent, God. I pray that the first step of that repentance even before we, as we repent, God, that we would just be real, that we would just be honest and call a spade a spade and say, Lord, this is the area that I have not been willing to submit to you. I'm afraid to submit it to you because, honestly, I don't trust you in this area. I don't believe you for your power and your love and your strength in this area. Lord Jesus, help us to be honest and confess that to you, God, and empower us to grab a brother or sister and confess it to them and ask them, pray for me. I struggle in this area, Lord. Pray for me that I might submit it to your loving, powerful authority, God, that all might result in praise and glory and honor and wealth to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.